Praise the Lord. Let us go before him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to give glory to your name. We come to honor you, for your name is holy. We come to honor you, for you are the sovereign God who sits on his throne from eternity to eternity, doing all that which is pleasing in your sight, even saving your people through your Son, Jesus Christ, and serving them freely through a scandalous gospel that gives us a righteousness, that makes us blameless before you on account of the work of another, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your life even your resurrected life that you have given to your people by your spirit who raised you from the dead, who has also raised us from the dead and shall raise us again from the dead. Lord, we just honor you and we praise you for this time to hear from your word and to learn and we just ask for understanding. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit will teach your people. These who are gathered here this morning, and those who shall listen from afar. Our Lord, may your word return to you, having accomplished the work that you sent it to do. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John seven twenty-five to 36. <laughs> John seven twenty-five to 36. We try to balance teaching the verses verse by verse with also bringing the overarching teaching of the Bible, the gospel into places where you typically would not even see that as gospel, where you may not even be able to extract a gospel message from. And that is why the messages end up being long because if I was just explaining the verses, I'll be done in the next 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> and, um, Praise the Lord, it's not going to happen today. <laughs> but we try to bring understanding because the gospel has been explained in greater detail in other places in the New Testament. So we bring that understanding even to our reading of the gospels to try and get understanding of what it is that the Lord was communicating to the people that he was talking to. And this would not have been different. The issues with the Jews are not just problems with the Jews. These are problems with all humanity. The story would have been exactly the same way, whether you had put Canaanites there, Hittites, Gemites, Jebusites, you name it, Temites. <laughs> John 7, 25 to 36. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill. But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, 
But he who sent me is true whom you do not know. But I know him for I am from him and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees had the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I'll go to him who sent me. You seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? The word of the Lord. Sermon title, Where I am you cannot come. Where I am you cannot come. The problem with sin is that it prevents sinners from going where Jesus is. That's the problem. The problem with sin is that it prevents man from going where Jesus is because all men, everything said and done, they need Jesus. And they need To be where Jesus is. And so it is important. For you and I to know. How to get where Jesus is. Because according to Jesus. It has to be every man's endeavor. If possible. If it was possible. It has to be every man's endeavor. To strive. To get where Jesus is. In Matthew 13 verse 24 Jesus said strive to enter through the narrow gate for many many I say to you will seek to enter and will not be able there's a narrow gate that has to be entered through according to Jesus there is a narrow gate that has to be entered through if one has to be saved and it is not a physical gate and it is not one of those revolving doors at the entrances of the big buildings the narrow gate is jesus himself and the narrowness of the gate is the requirement of the righteousness that one has to possess in order to be able to enter through And because the gate is narrow to get to where Jesus is, one cannot carry anything through the gate. They need to enter through the gate naked. There's no NSA, by the way. They need to enter in naked if they have to come out to the other end. Too many clothes will get you entangled and will trip you 
right into hell. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, he says, let us lay aside every weight. Lay aside every weight. And the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. There is only one way to lay aside every weight. There is only one way to lay aside every weight of self-righteousness and of every sin that you have ever committed and that you ever commit. And that is by fixing our eyes to Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith that leads through the narrow gate. There's only one way to lay aside your weight. And it is by looking only to Jesus, the author and finisher of the righteousness that leads through the narrow gate. The picture of laying aside is one of a Middle Eastern person wearing those long robes or clothing that get to the heels. And those are not good clothes to run in in a race that one seeks to win. One has to be spiritually clothed right as one who is running in the Olympics. That's the language of the Olympics. If you are running in the Olympics, you run to win the race. And you have to have the right kinds of clothes. And you have to have your focus on the price. And the writer of Hebrews says, you remove all the entanglements of those clothes, tuck them in, and run looking to Jesus the price. But the Middle Eastern regalia, the clothing is a picture of how many, of how many professing Christians are wrapped up in the garments of their own works. They are so entangled in the garments of their own works to the point that they can't fix their eyes on Jesus and they can't run looking to Jesus. They can't run to Jesus because their own works of self-righteousness will trip them. Will trip them and they will fall right into hell. Blind but mears threw off his clock when he had the core of Jesus and he laid aside every weight that he may run unhindered to Christ. His clock symbolized his own righteousness and self-security because this is what he had for his comfort. And yet this very clock that he depended on on a day-to-day basis, he takes it off running even before his eyes were opened. 
And he runs to Christ. He runs to Christ. So blind but mirrors is a picture of how we ought to run to Christ. With nothing on. With nothing that is covering us. With no confidence with anything or in anything that we have covered ourselves with. The man with the legion of demons entered through the narrow gate. The man with the legion of demons entered through the narrow gate because he was found naked. He had no covering. He had no righteousness to talk about. And such people like the blind men, such people as the men who had the legion of demons, received the righteousness of Christ. They received the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is the narrow way. And it is given to those who are naked and are not entangled in their own projects of self-salvation. So Jesus is the narrow way. He is the narrow gate. By that understanding, the Lord would have us to understand that there are many roads in this life that claim to take you to heaven. They all have the banner that says heaven. Every one of those doors, every one of those roads have this big sign in bold and gold print <laughs> that says heaven. But Jesus says there is a narrow way and the right way. And the only way that lives there is the righteousness of Christ. And many people think they are on the narrow way by the things that they approve of or they don't approve of. The road to salvation is not about the things that we approve or don't approve of. The road to salvation is only through the narrow gate who is Jesus Christ and through his own righteousness which is a very narrow righteousness because is the only one of his kind. The Jews think they are on the narrow way to heaven. That's the background that we're developing. The Jews think they are on the narrow way to heaven by their obedience to the law and because of their bloodline being descendants of the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They think they have salvation. They think it is well between them and God. But they have not learned of the narrow way, the true narrow way. And Jesus is about to teach them about the narrow way and is teaching them about the narrow way. So to say obedience to the law is to say one is standing on their own goodness and their own obedience. Obedience to the law by your effort is standing on the broad way, is standing on your own 
righteousness. But Jesus has come and told the Jews that none of them keeps the law because to just have the law as the Jews thought and to talk about it is not the same as doing the law. Yes, Moses gave them the law, but none of them kept the law. None of them was following what the law demanded. The law pointed them to the Messiah. The law pointed them to their deliverer. It did not point them to themselves. <laughs> it was never designed to give them a righteous standing with God. The law was never given to give life. The law testified of their lack of righteousness and their inability to accomplish any righteousness that was acceptable before God. So having done that, it showed them where to go for righteousness if they were understanding the law right. And as I have argued before, the law is like x-rays. X-rays will tell you that you have a broken rib or that you have pneumonia in your lungs. But you don't get treated for a broken rib or pneumonia by being zapped with x-rays. Okay, we just discovered that you have pneumonia. So for your treatment, you're going to come three times a day and we zap your lungs with x-rays. That's not the treatment of pneumonia. X-rays are there to expose a hidden problem. A problem that is not visible to the naked eye, but are never for treatment of a broken rib. X-rays are never treatment for pneumonia. And so, in like manner, the law was given to reveal to us that we had a deeper internal problem that needed to be fixed, but could not be fixed by the law. The law has no resources in itself to fix anything. The law only tells you the standard and condemns you if you don't meet it. That's all it does. The law discovers sin, shows you your inability to be good, but if it is understood right, it recommends Christ for treatment. The law recommends Christ for treatment. Jesus does not treat you with the law. Jesus treats you with his own righteousness. He cleans you with his blood. He cleanses you with the blood that goes deeper than the stain has gone. So the Jews are pretending to be keepers of the law. Just like many of our professing Christians today pretend to be keepers of the law. The Jews were accusing the Lord for breaking the Sabbath. And they could only accuse him of breaking the Sabbath if they thought they were keeping the law. <laughs> 
they thought they were keeping the law. And even in our day and time, we have false brethren <laughs> who falsely accuse us sovereign grace people of being antinomian, which means anti-law, against the law, because we believe in the gospel of grace. And we believe that men as sinners are not able to honor the law of God by themselves. We are not opposed to the law of God, but we are just making a realization as the Holy Spirit teaches that we cannot do the law. We are just in favor of the good news of the gospel. But the Lord Jesus Christ has been teaching the Jews by his works on the Sabbath. The Lord has been healing people on the Sabbath. And he's been teaching them that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It was made for men to rest from their works of trying to be righteous before God by their own doing. And so Jesus, Jesus Christ comes and he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I give you interpretation and understanding of what the Sabbath is all about. It is by my works. It is by my obedience that sinners will ever enter into God's rest. It is by his circumcision, not of the flesh, but his circumcision on the cross, that men are made righteous and obedient to God. And so both the Sabbath and circumcision were fulfilled in Christ. And yet the Jews do not get it, and they could not have known it unless God taught them. And we need to be taught by God to understand the gospel. It's not enough to read the scriptures. It's not enough to talk about the law. We have to understand the reason why God gave the law. We have to understand that the law was given as a servant to Christ. The law was given as a babysitter. Okay? The law was given as a babysitter. The law was given as a servant in the house who prepared the table, but they themselves don't sit on the table. The law is subservient to Christ. Once Christ has showed up, the law as a servant has to decrease that Christ alone may be exalted. So Jesus has shown the Jews the impossibility of keeping the law. And Jesus has shown them that trying to keep the law as a sinner makes one a hypocrite. If you try to keep the law as a sinner, it makes you a hypocrite. So he gave an illustration of how they had things messed up because they didn't understand what the law was about. God commanded circumcision for all the descendants of Abraham in Genesis 17. And this requirement 
of circumcision was to be performed on the eighth day. Circumcision always had to be performed on the eighth day. And actually, as a matter of fact, the eighth day, scientists have determined that that's the best day for circumcision because this is the day in the life of a child that they have the best clotting factors. Yeah, the eighth day. It's not. So God was very lucky. He just got the eighth day right. <laughs> the eighth day is the best day to do circumcision because they're able to clot. Well, the clotting factors are right there working. Anyway, so God has made this requirement and given it to Abraham but then it is also transported into the old covenant. So the old covenant, the covenant that God gave on Mount Sinai is not the one that brought circumcision. Circumcision was already there, but it was added to the old covenant. Now, circumcision was to be done on the eighth day. Okay? If children were born on Saturday, the boys who were born on Saturday had to be circumcised when? The next Saturday. And this would have been work on the Sabbath. But the Jews were circumcising on the 8th because they were afraid of what God had said. That if you did not circumcise on the 8th, the children were to be cut off. So they break the Sabbath to honor another provision of the law. So by that, by their understanding, by their reading of the law, that would make them hypocrites. And so Jesus would argue and say, you guys recognize that. You are keeping a provision of the law and circumcising people on a Sabbath when you are not supposed to do that. And yet I am doing the same thing and I'm healing people on the Sabbath. You guys are circumcising just one part of the body. But I am making the whole person whole. I am healing the whole person. So if you are understanding things right. I have a better deal. <laughs> the gospel Here's better news for you. It does not just circumcise just one part of your body and not just external circumcision. It circumcises from within and it makes the whole person whole. And that was the discussion that was happening right here. So the law could not and cannot heal the whole body. Only the gospel of Christ has the power to heal and to circumcise a sinner from inside and to give such a sinner the true rest, the everlasting rest, the everlasting righteousness to the whole man. But the Jews are not very amused by Jesus. And they have some arguments to make. They have some arguments to make. They have some questions to ask about Jesus. 
So they debate about the origin of Christ. So the discussion about the Sabbath and circumcision is going to be abandoned and now shifts to the identity and origin of Christ. The Jews in Jerusalem, the Jews from Jerusalem, are in on the rumor mill about Jesus. They know that Jesus is a controversial figure, and they've had, and they've had many questions raised about him. And they are also aware that the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the scribes, are seeking to kill him. And yet, in spite of that danger, Jesus seemed not to care. (laughs) He did not go and hide in the basement or run to the mountains. He continued his public ministry and faced, even in the face of such a threat to his life. So the Jews had these questions in verse 25, John 7, 25, 26, 27. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. (laughs) The Jews see Jesus and they recognize him and they ask three questions that John does not bother to answer for us. They are all rhetorical questions. And John still leaves us in suspense as to the answers We know what the answers are, but he does not answer the questions. The first question was, in verse 25, is this not he whom they seek to kill? The Jews are amazed at Jesus' freedom and lack of fear in the face of such a threat to his life. And to add to their surprise, Jesus continues his public ministry And so they marvel again and say in verse 26, But look, even though they seek to kill him, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Yes, he speaks boldly and is not afraid of man because his name is Jesus. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The second question by these Jews is connected to the first one. If the religious authorities are seeking to kill Jesus, why not get him now? He is right here in the open and has brought himself into their hands. But they reason and say, since there seems to be a lack of initiative to that end of arresting him, maybe the rulers have already made a private assessment of Jesus. 
and came to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Otherwise, they would not be letting him roam in the city without arresting him. So they think that because Jesus continues to do what he's doing, then probably the religious authorities have come to the conclusion that, well, we think Jesus is the Messiah, just as Nicodemus had said when he came to Jesus and said, no, we know that you are a teacher, a good teacher come from God. For no one can do the things that you do unless God was with him. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, thank you, Nicodemus, you are so kind. No. <laughs> Jesus tells Nicodemus that you have no authority to give me an interpretation of heavenly things. Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you no way understand the things of God. No man can come to a correct assessment of Jesus unless God the Father reveals Christ to them. Jesus said in Luke 10, 22, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And in Isaiah 53, 1, Isaiah writes and says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord has to be revealed to you. And in Luke 10, I think I made a mistake there with my verse. But you remember the conversation when Jesus was asking his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And then he said, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, by Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So there is no way that the religious authorities could have come to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah by their own power, by their own understanding. It was impossible. Unless God had actually revealed that to them. But the speculation by the Jews does not stay in their mind for very long. Because as soon as they seemingly had made the correct assessment of Jesus, immediately they speculated themselves away from Christ. By saying, however, verse 27, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So initially they sounded like they were saying the religious authorities have come to the correct assessment that Jesus is the Messiah. But as soon as they make that statement, they move away from that statement. And they say, oh no, he, he can't be the Messiah. We know him. <laughs> and by this they demonstrate again that they know nothing of the person of Jesus. They think that if the rulers have determined that Jesus is the Christ, by the very reason that they are not arresting him, they may need to make a reassessment of their position and understanding of Jesus. Why? Because they think 
if Jesus is walking about and teaching without getting arrested, then the rulers have come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. But Jesus cannot be the Christ because according to them, they know him. So the rulers, if that's their conclusion, have not done their due diligence. Jesus can't be the Christ because they know him. They need to reassess the person of Jesus. They need to subject Jesus to a battery of tests. They are going to put Jesus to a test of some widely held notions about the origin of the Messiah. You see, the question is the origin of the Messiah. Christ can't be the Christ because they know where he is from. So they say, first and foremost, Jesus cannot be the Messiah because we know his family. We know his brothers. We know his parents. We know his sisters. So there's no way that he can be the Christ. So if the religious authorities have come to this conclusion, then they are mistaken. They too have been deceived. <laughs> In verse 27, they said, However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. So the first criterion to judge the authenticity of the person of Christ as the Messiah was his origin. And his origin could not be known. Which, of course, <laughs> fits the very Jesus who is in front of them. But they are ignorant of his origin. Jesus was not from Jerusalem. He traces his origin from the Father. Jesus is from heaven. It is he who descended from heaven. And the second criterion was that the Christ was going to perform a lot of miracles. But the question is, well, Jesus has performed miracles, but is the Christ going to perform bigger miracles? Now they are questioning the quality and the quantity of the miracles. They are not denying that Jesus is a miracle worker. They are, they are questioning whether the Christ would come and do works that surpasses those of Christ. So they say, could anybody else who claimed to be the Messiah be able to perform miracles or signs as John calls them more than what Jesus has already displayed? So that brings us to the third question that they asked. And many of the people, invested one, believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So you see, those are criterion being used to evaluate the Messiah. But what we see from reading this is that they do acknowledge that Jesus is an extraordinary person. But they're not fully satisfied. So they kind of just left themselves undecided about Jesus. However, it is not enough to believe the miracles. And it is not enough to say some positive things about Jesus. 
And it is not enough to be undecided about Jesus. It doesn't make you safe if you decide to be undecided about Jesus. The question that has to be answered by every man is, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the one that you think you know, the one made after our own image? Or is he the one who is the express image of God? The one who has to be revealed to you by the Father. The Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the scriptures already have knowledge of where the Messiah was to come from. The scriptures already had knowledge of the origin of the Messiah. In Micah 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. So this is the origin. The going forth are from of old. So he is the one who is standing in their midst. And they have the scriptures. And even in Matthew 2, 4, 6, we are told by Matthew that, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, Matthew 2, 4 to 6, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. That was Herod. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, quoting Micah, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And also in Daniel 7.13, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So this is the one who is standing before them. But the Jews in Jerusalem, in spite of having the scriptures, in spite of having this understanding from the Old Testament, hold to some other speculative understanding that the Messiah would be unknown and could come and be living among the people unknown to them. And then suddenly he would just come and overtake their enemies and deliver them from their enemies. But as far as this Jesus is concerned, they know everything about him. They know about this Jesus. So he can't be the Messiah. But Jesus is not impressed by their speculations. And so he cried out. Verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, You both know me and you know where I'm from. And I have not come out of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know. But I know him. For I am from him, and he sent me. So, apparently, Jesus overheard their theological speculations. Or, as John would say in John 2, verses 24 and 25, 
Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had not need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. But this speculation by the Jews interrupts Jesus' teaching. And do you realize that we actually are not given the actual teaching of Jesus? <laughs> we are just told what was happening but the actual content of the teaching, because Jesus has been teaching for a minute. He has stood up and has been teaching. But John does not teach us or tell us the content of what Jesus had been talking about. But Jesus is interrupted from his teaching. He cries out. And he answers their questions of his identity and origin with a loud voice. Suggesting that Jesus was mad suggesting a strong rebuke of their hardness of heart to believe in him. He said to them, You both know me, not as the son of Joseph, but as the Messiah. But in your pretensions, you are denying to know who I am and where I come from. The Jews have reduced Jesus to just an earthly existence and origin in their knowledge of him. But Jesus says, no, you know that I am not from here and I have not come of myself, but him who sent me is true, that is God the Father. He who sent me is Jesus' way to say God the Father. And Jesus says, he who sent me is true and is real and that authenticates who Jesus is and where he is from. But the problem with the Jews is that they do not know he who is true. Jesus says the problem why you can't believe in me is because you don't know he who is true. You got to understand that. Jesus says the reason why you don't get it. It's because you don't know who God is. <laughs> they do not know God in spite of their pretensions of keeping the law of God. The Jews, as we talked about, prided themselves in knowing God because they had the law. They were physical descendants of Abraham. But Jesus comes and says, if you Jews are failing to recognize who I am, then your knowledge of God is also false. And your knowledge of the law is also false. If you knew God, you would have understood that the law spoke about me. It testified of the Son. It testified of the Messiah who is the one standing in your midst. So Jesus says, anyone who rejects the Son does not know God because God cannot be known or loved outside knowing and loving the Son. And the law cannot be obeyed, the law cannot be kept outside knowing and loving the Son. Amen, Charlie. We are not beating up on the law. 
But this is the whole argument right from chapter 5. That's the argument. If anyone says they love the law, they come to the Son. They don't reject the Son and say they love the law. (laughs) The law leads to the Son and then the Son tells you. When you come to the Son, the Son tells you, He teaches you what you need to know. And you listen to the Son, you don't listen to the law. Moses said, you listen to the prophet that God is going to raise. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, God says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Christ. And of course, this does not make friends. (laughs) Meek and mild Jesus does not make friends with the Jews. As always, he causes division. Whenever the true Jesus is talked about, there has to be division. And the Jews had a solution for silencing Jesus. This is their solution. Therefore, they sought to take him. Just based on those statements, <laughs> based on the statement that you both know me and you know where I'm from and I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him and he sent me. Based on those statements, they thought, let's take him. Let's take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The Jews are enraged by Jesus' comments, and they sought to take him, to arrest him, before the religious authorities. Because in the chapter or in this section that we are talking about today, the religious authorities also are going to issue a warrant of arrest on Jesus. (laughs) But John says, however, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The hour of Jesus' glorification on the cross had not yet come. And this indicated that in spite of all the pretensions of being in control, men are not in control of anything. Even with their hatred of Jesus, they still could not lay their hands on him. He was right there. He didn't even have any guns. He didn't even have any sword. But they could not lay their hands on him because the schedule and season of all things, is driven by God's sovereignty. Men are creatures and creatures are not self-determining. The will of creatures was to arrest Jesus, but they could not arrest him. Right there. He didn't run away from them. The will of creatures accomplishes nothing even in trying to do a wicked act. If you determine to do harm to someone, if the Lord does not determine for you to do it, you can't do it. You won't be able to do it. You can't. And what that means is that there's none who can get in the way of what God has determined to accomplish, even with you at your personal level, until it is done. 
if something happens in your life, then it means the hour had come. It means the hour has come. The hour of God's appointment for the things that he determined to happen in your life. Job said in Job 23.14, For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Many such things that are appointed for you are with him, and he who performed them. He performs them. All life and all things are predestined predestinated by God, decreed by Him, and there's nothing that will fail. So that none will have or lose more in this life or the one to come than that which God determined to give them. You are never going to end this life not having done everything that God appointed for you to do. Oh, he lived his life very well. Just made the best use of his life. (laughs) Like it was up to them. No. You're only living what God has appointed for you. And yet in performing sinful deeds, God makes sinners responsible for what he predestined to be done to show that he alone is God. And man are not God. Men are creatures. <laughs> X 4.27-28 For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. They were gathered together by their free will. Verse 28 <laughs> To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Were there not people who actually came and were spitting at Jesus? There were people who were spitting at Jesus, right? There were people who were coming and giving him vinegar, right? Peter says, without apology, it's God who purposed that it will be done. And that just blows the minds of People like, how could God do that? How could God even allow that to be done to his own son? But that's the God of the Bible. And about Judas, in Luke 22, 22, he says, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. By who? By God. Who determines? (laughs) But war to that man by whom he is betrayed. But Why pronounce a war on me if you are the one who determined for that to be done? Why not determine for me not to do it? He says, war to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. That's God being God. But John says, in verse 31, And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So there were some among the multitude who believed in him. But we are not sure if they believed in him in the sense that they came to actual saving faith. Or they just believed in him 
as a good man who was performing good deeds for the people. They may have believed in him in the sense that John described earlier in John 2 when Jesus was at the Passover in Jerusalem during the feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But to tell you that their faith was not genuine faith, John says in verse 24 of John 2, But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. So he knew that their faith was fake. They were believing in him as a vending machine of free healing, benihin, and free food. And as many do in our day, who are still opposed to the true God of the Bible, and yet they say by the same mouth that they believe in Jesus. So these people did not believe in him as the Messiah, and so they continued to speculate about him based on the signs that he was performing. But the authorities, the religious figures, were not amused by the whisperings of the tentative faith in Jesus. They think Jesus, though he is very learned, they realize that about Jesus. They acknowledge that about Jesus, but they still think Jesus is a deceiver. And if he is starting to sway people to himself, then he has to be arrested right away because that would undermine their jobs. This was all about job security. That would undermine their jobs and religious authority. So they issued a warrant of arrest on him. So the Pharisees had the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. Uh, that's from verse 32. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So the officers were the temple guards, Levites, temple guards. They were sent to arrest Jesus. Jesus keeps talking. And Jesus is going to keep talking until his hour has come. But when the hour had come, Jesus stops talking. Until the hour has come, Jesus cannot be arrested. Jesus cannot be silenced. But when the hour had come, Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So as long as the hour has not come, Jesus is going to keep talking. And no one can arrest him. So what happened to the officers who were sent to arrest him? <laughs> they came back without Jesus. <laughs> they came back without Jesus. Because if Jesus has to be arrested, it will only be in subjection to his own father and not to the authority of his creatures. Jesus is not arrested and he continues to teach, but he is aware 
of the warrant to arrest him. But says in verse 33, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I'll go to him who sent me. You seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So Jesus is dismissive of the warrant of arrest and makes a mockery of the arrest by outlining for them his time schedule. (laughs) These guys are waiting to arrest Jesus and Jesus says, no, this is not going to happen right now. (laughs) Let me tell you what's going to happen. I am going to be with you a little while. Not in prison, as you think. Not in jail. I'll just be out here talking and preaching and I'm going to go home after I'm done. And emphasizing to them again that he was in total and absolute control of his schedule and not the religious leaders. So he mesmerized the temple guards with his teaching. Okay, He mesmerized them and enchanted them with his power that when they went back, the religious authorities asked them and said, well, where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? And they said, we have never had a man speak with such authority. We could not arrest him. But for Jesus, death is not the end of his life. He has come to accomplish his own death and thereafter to rise and go back to the Father. That is very important. And that's what Jesus is telling them. I'm going to be with you for a little while. And when I'm done with my work of dying, I'm going to rise and go back to be with my father. And when I get there, you can't come. Right now, you can come to me and see me teach in the temple. But once my work is done, I am going to a place where you can't come. So the death and resurrection of Christ is contained in that teaching. It's anticipated in that teaching. Because as we know in John 17, 1-2, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. This is Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission is to die, and the purpose of that death is so that Jesus would give eternal life to as many as have been given him by the Father. That is definite atonement. That is limited atonement. Jesus did not die for everybody. He died for as many as were given him by the Father. These are the ones that have eternal life. And so he would say in John 17, 4 and 5, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What work? The work of giving eternal life to those that the Father gave him. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus has come to this work. This 
this is what has been appointed for him by the father. But his work requires the use of human instruments to accomplish his death. Because it is a theologically important death. The death of Jesus is unlike the death of anybody else. The death of Jesus was for the giving of eternal life. It is the death of the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus already anticipates his death and resurrection in the statements that he is making to the Jews. And according to Jesus, all events are timed to the cross. All human movement is tied to the cross. After the cross, Jesus knows that his resurrection is sure. Jesus had no doubt that he was going to die and resurrect. He knew the end from the beginning. Because he's God. So he has come to accomplish the work that the Father, the one who sent him, gave him to do. And the evidence that the work that the Father sent him to do is that the Father will raise Jesus Christ and glorify him with the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. So Jesus already prays and says, I have accomplished the work that you have sent me to do. And because the work is accomplished, now glorify me with the glory that I had with you. So when was your salvation accomplished? Your salvation was accomplished when Christ finished the work that the Father sent him to do. Because his glorification with the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world was contingent upon him accomplishing the work that the Father gave him to do. So your salvation, the work of salvation was accomplished by Christ in his life, death, and the resurrection was the evidence that the Son had completed the work that the Father had sent him to do. There's a lot of confusing teaching about justification. It's so confusing that you end up not even knowing what you used to know. I'm serious. If you read all the kinds of stuff and arguments, these forums and people just arguing and stuff like that, they'll say, I'll discuss this some time later, the Lord winning. With justification, some say we were eternally justified. Some say we are justified on the cross. Those who say we are eternally justified say that we are never sinners. Never at any point. Some say we were justified on the cross. And others say we are justified at the moment of faith. When you split the things of God like that, you always abound to create confusion. God has justified us in the work of his son. Because when Christ came, 
he came as our representative. And as our representative, we were in union with him. So that everything that Christ did, God saw and sees us as having done it in him. So when Christ said, I have accomplished the work that he sent me to do, we can put Jeannie there and say, that is when the work that God required of her for salvation was accomplished. The scriptures teach that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in Christ, which means God the Father put us in Christ, put us in union with Christ before the foundation of the world. But we were not saved then. With the intention that in time, the Son will come down to the world and accomplish the work of salvation. So when Christ came to the world, he accomplished our salvation. Our salvation required him dying. Our salvation required him entering into our place as a sinner, as our surety. Him not being a sinner, but bearing the sins of his people. So as he was on the cross and paying for our sins, the actual transaction of paying for our sins happened on the cross. And you cannot be set free from debt until you make the payment. So until Christ had died on the cross, the payment for salvation had not been made. As we learned from the teaching of the city of refuge, God said the transaction that sets the manslayer free is only the death of the high priest. So the manslayer only gained their freedom on the death of the high priest. So you and I, as those who are in Christ, were set free as far as God is concerned when the high priest died. And that is why the scriptures would say we're justified by his blood. When was the blood of Christ shed? It was shed 2,000 years ago. So Christ was put on the cross to pay for our sins and we were justified by his blood. But look at this. If Jesus went on the cross, he went on the cross as someone who was condemned as a sinner. And if he was condemned as a sinner, he too needed to be exonerated as a righteous person. He also needed to be vindicated that he was righteous. And God's vindication of the righteousness of Christ was by the raising of Christ from the dead. So Jesus had to be justified. Not because he was a sinner himself, but because he had entered into the position of sinners and assumed their legal responsibilities before God. 
And so he had to be justified by God himself. God has to come to Jesus and say, I am satisfied with the work that you have accomplished. So in the justification of Christ by the resurrection, Christ was not being justified as you and I are justified. Christ was being justified as one who was holy, innocent, undefiled, and separate from sinners. But in the justification of Christ, we also were justified because we were in him. In time, Jeannie was not born. But God already determined to bring her in this time. So when she came, she was ignorant of all those things. In time, God brings the Holy Spirit to her and teaches her, gives her the new birth, teaches her of who she actually is in Christ. She is brought to the knowledge of her justification. She is brought to the knowledge of her election and says, Guess what, Jeannie? There's more to you than what you thought. You belong to Christ. You belong to another. Or by the way, you were justified 2,000 years ago by this Son of God who is called Christ. That was all for free. That was not in the text. <laughs> okay. So how, how did we come to this? We came to that because we are talking about the work of Christ. That he came with the purpose of accomplishing salvation. And the work of salvation was so sure that Jesus is already anticipating his own resurrection. And he's already anticipating his own glorification. And such is the assurance that we have because of the gospel. Because the gospel gives us assurance. I read two days ago some saint, some bishop, some Roman Catholic from 400 years ago who said the worst doctrine that the Protestants brought to the church was the assurance of salvation. You say that's the worst doctrine. But Jesus is teaching here of assurance of salvation because our salvation is tied to his own glorification. If Christ cannot be glorified, then you can't be saved. But if Christ is glorified, then your salvation is also sure. So when Jesus is done with his work, he has to return back to his father. And he is going to go to a place where men shall need to reach him. He is going to a place where they will seek him. As he said to the Jews in John 8, 21, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Where I go, you cannot. Even if you try, you cannot come. Where Christ is, man cannot come. And Jesus says, you seek me and will die in your sin. 
What Jesus is saying is, if you can't access Jesus now, you won't be able to access him any other time. If you can't come to Christ now, you can't come to Christ any other time beyond now. If the Jews cannot come to him, if they can't access him now, they would not be able to access him then in the time to come. If things are going to be well with any person in this time to come, they have to settle it with Jesus in this now time. All men will seek him, but will not find him because where he goes, they can't come. Jesus says, where I am, you cannot come. What do you mean, Jesus? Where I am, you cannot come. That sounds like Jesus' statement to Nicodemus in John 3.13. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. How is the son of man in heaven and while at the same time he's talking to Nicodemus? Jesus says, where I am, you cannot come. But Jesus, you are here in the temple. Where are you, Jesus? That tells you more about Jesus. Where I am, but Jesus does not say, where I am going, you won't come. He says, where I am, you won't come. Like, where I am? That speaks to the omnipresence of Christ. It speaks to him as God. They will not be able to find the way to where he is because... By rejecting him, they have rejected the way. And because they have rejected the way, they shall seek the way. They shall seek him because of their sin, because he alone is able to deal with sin. A time is coming when sin shall fully reveal to people their desperate need for Jesus. A time that God shall reveal to people their desperate need for Jesus. But it will be too late because Jesus says, you shall seek me, but you cannot come. And you won't find me. And Jesus said, you die in your sin. You die, that's the same thing as Jesus saying, you die in your vomit, covered or buried in your own vomit without anyone to cleanse you from it. You die in your sin, but you won't be able to come to me so that I may remove your sin. And those who refuse the gospel now have no other chance after they die to hear it again and accept it. That's just how God has arranged things. And that is why God's invitation into the rest of Christ, the rest of the gospel, in Hebrews 4-7 is, Again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, 
if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you have to come to where Christ is, God has to bring you to where Christ is. You need to come naked and you have to enter through the narrow and straight gate. The psalmist in Psalm 24, 3 and 5 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. What is that saying? But that would disqualify everyone. It is he who is the righteousness of Christ. Because Christ did not lift up his soul to an idol. And Christ never swore deceitfully. But in Christ doing that, God sees us as having done it in him. And listen to verse 5 of Psalm 24. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the one who shall come to Christ, the one who shall find Christ where he is, is the one who knows Christ as the truth, the way, and the life. It is he who comes singing, or he can come to Christ singing, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling, come to thee for dress. That assumes they're naked, right? Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless. Look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's our gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your holy throne this afternoon. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that we have been given the ability to come to Christ, to even come to where he is, where many have not been given the power or the address to find him. We have the address to Christ. We have the means to get to Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We have been given the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ's finished work. Lord, we just thank you that you have been teaching us and continue to faithfully teach us that salvation is only of the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this day. And we pray again for those who could not make it this morning. We pray for these who are here. Be with them in their going out. Lord, may you keep them from stumbling. I pray for all those of Christ, wherever Christ is named, those who believe in the true gospel, Lord, be with them, and may you grant hearing to all those who shall hear this message until Christ comes. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.